0: Say hello, everyone. We've been talking, so I didn't. Uh, We'll cover the innumerable multitude today. In Revelation 7, you might be turning there. It was generally presumed in the Worldwide Church of God that the 144,000 represented Philadelphia as the era. That is why we watched the numbers in the church as feast attendance climbed toward 150,000 or so. Laodicea, was perceived to be the great multitude which had to be cleansed in the three and a half years of great tribulation just prior to Christ's return. This was never, I don't think, really preached universally as doctrine because Mr. Armstrong changed on his feeling on this at least three or four times that John himself heard. So it never was fully established as I've mentioned before. Now we've already seen The worldwide never reached anywhere near 150,000 or 144,000 converted people. One-third were children, some were visitors, maybe half were tares, others fell away, and the present sifting continues. So it does not appear by any means that we are destined in this era of the church to reach 144,000 converted people in the so-called Philadelphia era. Now we have seen that the first fruits are the 144,000, including Old Testament names as listed in Hebrews 11 and perhaps others, and the church from Acts 2 until Christ returns. They are the entirety of the first resurrection. After examining the great multitude carefully today, I believe we will see that they cannot be the Laodicean church era. They have to be someone else. Other than for curiosity, because this isn't a major doctrine in a sense, like uh, the nature of God, or the Trinity, or the Holy Days and the Sabbath. So, other than for curiosity, is there a real need for us to even understand who these people are? Well, obviously God wanted something known, or he wouldn't have put it in the Bible. If it's in the Bible, I try to understand it, because that is God's word to us. Now, there may be other reasons, but I feel one of the main reasons, this is a little clouded, and has been, and yet is important for us to understand now, is for the danger to our salvation if we do not understand it. The danger we might have of not achieving the kingdom of God, because if we feel that the Laodiceans, maybe they don't go to a place of safety, they went on into tribulation, and there's uh, an, an uncountable number of them. Sort of a big gray mass out there and that they can be heated up during the tribulation and qualify to be in the first resurrection, then we can sort of be comfortable sitting in that great number and think well if I don't repent enough now I can repent then and I'll still make it. And while that may be true in some cases, I don't believe at this point that that's who this group is. And I believe the onus is much stronger than that on you and me to make it now. Perhaps this is important to consider as we are approaching Passover, as to how hot we are for God as opposed to being lukewarm, and how hot we are at overcoming our own sins and problems. That's an aside, but it's important to understand. In order to continue with the idea that this multitude is the Laodicean era, a theory has been advanced to show that this does not have to be a large number of people, that the Greek language itself in Revelation 7 can allow for three or more people. And it has been advanced that the same words were used for the comparatively small group of men who took Christ into custody in Matthew 26. They are described as a great multitude there. The thesis there or the theory is that innumerable simply means uncountable since we cannot know the exact number who will be there. 144,000 is an exact number. The great multitude is not. Now it is true that these Greek words can convey and do in other contexts small groups of people indeterminate in number. We do not know how many actually came to take Christ, and that was a great multitude. The Greek can also be used to speak these words of millions or billions of people. Setting and context have to be used to determine what size group is meant in each case. And that's true in virtually anything you read in the Bible. You have to check the context. What is this talking about? Does this small, uncountable, that is uncountable because we do not know how many Laodiceans will repent, fit the context of Revelation and the plan of God as outlined in the Holy Days? Recent history has already shown we were wrong about 144,000 Philadelphians going to a place of safety. Were we also wrong about the great multitude representing the Laodiceans coming out of tribulation? That's the question for today. Once we determine who these people are, then the understanding of numbers will fall into line. Now let's go to Revelation 7. You're probably already there and dive right into this. Uh, The first part of the chapter talks again about the 144,000, and we spent quite a little time showing who they were, so I won't rehearse that at this point. Let's go right on down to verse 9, cut right to the chase. And it starts out by saying, after this, after the 144,000 are sealed, set apart. Now, what does after this mean to you? Not necessarily at the same time, not necessarily part of, but afterward, later in the story, further down the line, after this, I had breakfast, after this, I went to work. I had lunch. After this, I went back to work. The Greek, in the grammatical structure of the Greek, does not presume these events follow immediately, or necessarily that they are part of the preceding information, but that this information was given after the previous information. Perhaps it could follow right after, but the Greek does not require that. After this, I saw something else. Now, no man could number. He said it was a great multitude which no man could number. Why? Because of not knowing how many there were? Notice. Right after that, he says, of all nations, and implied all kindreds, and all people, and all tongues. What does that sound like to you, a little crowd of 20, 30, or 40 that came after Jesus Christ? Or does the context seem to imply something much greater than that? To me, it sounds like a lot of people, <clears throat> people from all over the world, every ethnic group and every language. Now consider that there are thousands of languages extant today. Now You may only be familiar with Chinese, Japanese, French, uh, Russian, German, and American But there are literally thousands of different languages and dialects scattered around the world, unintelligible to one another. So this is all peoples, all nations and tongues. So it has to be talking at bare minimum of thousands of people if there was only one representative of each language represented here. Are there people in the church today That is, the pool from which Laodicea is drawn from all languages, not even a start. Never was in worldwide, never went out in anywhere near the number of languages and kindreds and peoples and nations that there are on the earth today. Could there be people from all kindreds of people on earth who are come newly to the truth during the tribulation, who could then be classed as Laodiceans and fulfill this idea. Now think about that one. Do you really think a savage in the nether regions of the Congo, of Amazon, or of the outback of Australia, who was converted quote unquote, by the two witnesses, the only ones preaching the truth during that three and a half years, would come in as a laid-back, ho-hum, I'm okay type of Christian? Under those conditions of great tribulation on the earth, if they came in at all, they would be on fire. That period of time is explained as a time when all the world will hate, not respond to, by the millions. Anyone with half an understanding today can see where Laodicea is within the church of God. Why do we think God is spewing us out right now? Laodicea is already upon us. It isn't a a church era that is called during tribulation. There may be some in the tribulation who did not repent enough and are left in it, yes. But I think we're going to see before we're done that this great multitude is not talking about those people. Now let's go on. All these people stood before the Lamb, and, well, let's say they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Not on the throne, ruling, notice, they stood before the throne. Remember now that judgment is over a period of time. But God judges our character and gives us chance to overcome, chances to repent, to build proper righteous character. So, the firstfruits have already risen by now at Christ's return. They were the 144,000. And after this, you have all these people standing before the throne. None of those in the first resurrection will stand before his throne for judgment when he returns, for our judgment is now. And it will be completed in the reward given at his return. We'll see that in the scripture here in just a moment. This multitude stands before his throne for judgment, so they are not in the first resurrection. Judgment isn't given then to us. Now, in the process of judgment, they've donned white robes. The question is, when is their process of judgment? When does it occur? All cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb. So these people have turned and do know God, that we can see from this. And all the angels, verse 11, stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. So this is the time when the throne of God is established before them. They see that, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Now here's a curious question in verse 13. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, What are these, which are arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? Now, who is this speaking? Who are the elders? The elders, if you go back to chapter 4 and verse 4, are the 24 elders, apparently, he's speaking of here, in the kingdom of God. The 24 elders who are right now sitting before the throne of God. Singing and saying hallelujah to God. Now, who did they address? Well, the revelation was given to John, and the elder addressed John. Now, see, John was having this vision, just like the transfiguration. Remember, Christ was transfigured, and Moses and Elijah appeared with him. And Peter and John said, "Oh well, if Moses and Elijah are there, it must be the first. Re- it must be the Feast of the Tabernacles. Let's make booths." So in that vision, they saw the interaction between these individuals and knowing the scriptures and knowing the plan of salvation, they figured automatically it was peace of tabernacles. So get the picture that here John is having a vision from God and he sees all these events happening, sees all these personalities. Now in the vision, John has to already be a spirit being at this point because he's seeing on the screen of his mind an interplay between him and one of the twenty-four elders. So even though he was still a human being on earth when the vision was given to him, in the panorama of the vision he saw himself having a communication, a conversation with one of the twenty-four elders. Now this has to be a rhetorical question, does it not? Who are these? Now consider this from John's standpoint. He is one of the firstfruits. He has already been resurrected. He is already in the kingdom of God. He is already in communication and knows the 24 elders. And one of them asks him, Who are these people? Obviously they weren't in the first resurrection or it would have been known clearly. Who are they? And he said, You know who they are. (laughs) The 24 elders know God's plan. They know what's going on, so it had to be a rhetorical question asked so that you and I might understand later on what is being talked about. One of the elders answered and said to me, What are these, and who are they? That's a question you and I have. Who in the world are these people? It's kind of a strange question unless you see it this way. I always wondered about it a little bit. What it shows is a difference from the group above a different group than the 144,000 and they have to be identified as separate and that's the point here he's showing that this is a different people than those who are the first fruits in the first resurrection the whole point of the question these are they which came let's see now I don't want to miss something here I guess I said that he says these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes, and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, it says, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice it does not say they had their robes washed in tribulation. That is something we've assumed. It says they came out of tribulation. It also says they washed their robes. But it does not say, in so many words, they washed their robes in tribulation. Leave room in your mind to consider they may have come out of tribulation, then subsequently washed their robes, once offered salvation and judgment at some later point in time. I I raise that as a question for you to consider and uh, not clamp down on the thought that this cannot be because I think we'll see that there is some value to that point. Now let's move past great tribulation for a moment and examine more of their characteristics, then we'll come back to it. Let's go to verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. Now once made white, they will serve before the throne. Again, they're not sitting on the throne, they're serving as servants before the throne. In his temple. They are not the temple. They are serving in the temple. We are the temple of God if we are first fruits, are we not? We've seen that in many scriptures. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is living in us. We are his temple, a temple made not with hands, on and on, many of those scriptures. These are not the temple, as the first fruits are, they are serving in the temple. All right, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them to living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now remember, John was already there. He was already in the kingdom as in the first resurrection, already been changed, was talking with one of the 24 elders. This was yet future event, where these will be at that point, still yet in the future, led to the fountains of waters. it says he shall feed them shall lead them shall wipe away all tears from their eyes what does this sound like to you revelation 21 and 22 for salvation is offered to humans who have not yet attained salvation the fruit first fruits will already have been changed married christ and will not need to have their tears dried at this point in time Now let's consider Great Tribulation, for this is a statement that led to our believing that this was Laodicea coming out of what we call the Great Tribulation of three and one-half years. Some have thought and taught that these people represent the Laodicean Church made white in Tribulation, the Great Tribulation we term it. Can this be? Now consider that the Laodiceans are included in the first fruits. They're one of the seven heirs of God's Church. Notice in Revelation 3, just uh, in passing here, Revelation 3, verse 18. He's speaking directly to the Laodicean church here and says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore, and repent. And he says that he stands at the door and knocks. But notice verse 21, To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in his throne. So the Laodiceans are not standing before the throne for judgment. They are sat down with Christ in his throne. Now when he sits down in judgment, they sit down with him. They are his bride. We'll see another scripture or two that make that absolutely clear. Well, if this one doesn't, this shows that they are part of the first resurrection if they overcome and grow and come out of it and are part of the first fruits and part of the bride of Christ and sit with him. So the group standing before the throne to be judged obviously can't be the Laodiceans. Now let's go back. The original church at Laodicea, another point on that, contained members of the firstfruits, just as the end-time church era of Laodicea contains firstfruits who are changed at the return of Christ. Now there were Laodiceans back in the first early New Testament church. If they qualify, they're going to be part of the firstfruits, part of the first resurrection. Those Laodiceans martyred in tribulation to prove their faithfulness Will be included in the first resurrection as part of the 144,000. They are dead in Christ, like any other martyr, Revelation 6, 9, and rise first. Those which are dead rise first, Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17 tell us that. And then they which remain alive are changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. All right then, supposing this group is not the Laodiceans, who could they be? Frank Nelte, which some of you who, whom some of you are familiar with, has been an elder in the church for many years in South Africa, and has written quite a number of papers, uh, is very voluminous in his writings, and he did one on the Great Tribulation and the Great Multitude, which I will refer to here, because he went into the Greek and, and to the exposition of this particular chapter of the Great Multitude in great detail, about 30 pages of it and explains all of the different uh, uh, nuances of the Greek language and how it's used and the various tenses of it and I won't for sake of time go through all that. I am going to go into the Greek a little bit here uh, to show what these words really mean and what this is talking about but for some of you who might want more backup or more detail or more proof uh, you can get hold of Frank's paper over the internet Or, if you do not have access there, you could contact me at the office, and I'd be happy to send you a copy of that for further detail on it. Uh, For me to go through that much technicality would put you all to sleep, and we would run way over time. So I'm going to hit the highlights of the Greek here to show what I'm talking about. Now, we often call the three and a half years of trouble ahead of us the Great Tribulation. That's something I've heard all my life in God's church. The Great Tribulation, speaking of the three and a half years just before Christ returns. That is so ingrained in your mind and mine that this could be very difficult to erase or reconsider or think of in a different way. But there are some things to consider here. now. The commentaries and the Protestants are one of the main reasons we think the way we do. Let's review for a moment that we are the only people on the face of the earth, speaking of the greater church of God, who understand the plan of salvation of man as evidenced through the Holy Days. We understand the three resurrections. We understand the first fruits of trumpets. We understand the uh, people in the millennium during the ta- Feast of Tabernacles. We understand the last great day as referring to all the peoples who've never had a chance otherwise being resurrected, Ezekiel 37. Nobody else does. So when a Protestant commentator considers Revelation 7 and the great multitude, all he has to tie it to, not understanding the different resurrections, is Matthew 24:21, which talks about great tribulation. And it's so easy for us, since it's mentioned here, to also tie it together with that. But then what do you do with Matthew 26, where it said a great multitude came? And let's look at the word tribulation and great and see how it's used. Now let me go back and very quickly review Matthew 24, 21, for those who uh, might not can quote it, and I can't, so let's go back to it. Verse 21 of Matthew, this is in the context of fleeing. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, at this time, known, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. Now, there's not any question in my mind or yours that this is talking about the time just before Christ returns. I, I don't think any one of us would question that. And it's very plain in the context that it is talking about that period of time. So then what am I rattling on about here? Well, let's look at it. Great Tribulation is used four times in the Greek New Testament. Great is the Greek word megale, M-E-G-A-L-E. And Tribulation is glipsis, thlipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. So to put it together, it's Phlipsis Megali, Great Tribulation. It's used four times in the New Testament. So let's examine these in order and see what the context is, see what they're saying, and see if we can shed some light on this subject. Matthew 24, you were just there. I'll have you turn back in case you flip back already. We just read this, For then shall be great tribulation such as was not. Now let's leave that for a moment and go to Acts 7, Acts 7, and look down at verse 11. Here it says, now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt, Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. Now, uh, the old, I don't know what the uh, New King James, King James translates that, but uh, the old King James uh, translates it, great affliction. But in the Greek, it is exactly the same words that Christ used in Matthew 24, 21. Philipsis Megali. And he's talking about that as great tribulation. Now, what Now, what do we do? <laughs> is The great tribulation, the name of the specific event at the end of this age. Well, if it is, then somebody need to tell Luke who wrote Acts, because he called that affliction back then great tribulation. Exact same words. So it is an event. That was an event back there that he's talking about in the dearth of Egypt. It is is an event that Jesus Christ is talking about in Matthew 24. It is not necessarily a name for an event. And there is an important distinction there. Now, in neither one of these two passages, in Matthew 24 and Acts 7, does he add the definite article the. It is not called the Great Tribulation in either of those scriptures. It's just called great affliction, great tribulation, great trouble. Now, Matthew 24 does say it is the worst great trouble. But it doesn't say it is the great tribulation. We use it as a name, don't we? We refer to it as the great tribulation. Well, we'll see that that can be used, but it doesn't refer just to that. So Luke was comfortable in calling the famine great tribulation. Now Revelation 2 and verse 22 is the third usage in the Greek New Testament. Revelation 2 verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Now who's this written to? Church in Thyatira. That's a bygone era. Thyatira's been gone a long time in terms of consecutive end-to-end end eras as we've understood them through history. So that time was referred to as This Magali, Great Tribulation. It's already passed. It wasn't three and a half years either. It lasted a long time. So Christ referred to what happened to Thyatira as the same thing that will now happen at the end. Great tribulation. No difference. Exact same words. No definite article V here either. Now, if we go to Revelation 7 again and consider it, he does use the definite article V. Here the Greek, instead of just phlypsis megali, is ektes phlypsis tes megalis. It means the great tribulation. And it's the only place that is used this way with a definite article. It is in the present tense and should read they are coming out from the great tribulation as a name. Not just as an event like the dearth in Egypt or an event like great tribulation as a an event at the end of the age but this is very specific the great tribulation Now our minds like to pinpoint and tie all of these together into a neat little package and we like to do that with a lot of things because if it's not a neat little package it's too hard for our minds to grasp and therefore it frustrates us but when he uses different words then we have to consider that there might be a different meaning here See the Greek com- i mean the uh, Protestant commentators had no place to go with great tribulation mentioned here other than Matthew twenty-four twenty-one that fit their theory. They couldn't go to the one in Luke. I mean in Acts, they couldn't go to the one in Revelation two because it, it didn't mesh with what they were trying to to say. And maybe we didn't understand it well enough in the church because we had looked at the way the at it the way the Protestants have. Now, Philipsis is used forty-five times in the New Testament. The the word itself. It is rendered tribulation 21 times. It is called affliction 17 times. Trouble three times. Anguish once. Persecution once. Burdened once. And to be afflicted once. And I didn't check all of those, but they certainly don't all refer to the last three and a half years before Christ returns. They just don't. There are all kinds of different contexts. Now, Matthew 24, verse 29. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, Christ says. Now, he didn't say here, the Great Tribulation. He didn't even say Phlipsis Megali or Great Tribulation. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So that shows you right there that in Christ's thinking there were many, many tribulations through the ages, not just one. So we cannot lump all times of tribulation to a last three and a half years. Now Mark did not even include great in his account of the same event. Let's go to, uh, this Matthew 24, 29 corresponds to uh, Mark 13, 24, if you're looking at it in a harmony of the Gospels. But let's go read Mark's account. In Mark 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, interesting, that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. Stars of heaven shall fall, so he's speaking about the same time frame here, but he calls it that tribulation, not the great tribulation. So that can apply to many situations. Now, Luke 21, go to Luke 21 and verse 23. But woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. The point I'm making here is that Jesus Christ did not have a name for that three and a half years at the end. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all called it something different. Used different words. So it was not a name like the NASCAR 500 in Charlotte. It's more like a race, yes. But it's not specific as to necessarily which race, or if that's the only race, maybe is what I should say. Because there are other races than the NASCAR 500 here, whatever they call it. Here, Luke uses different Greek words, or wordage. It's anagke, A-N-A-G-K-E, Megali. And it means a necessity, as opposed to a tribulation. A necessity means a time when the necessaries are not there. There's very little food, famine, that type of thing. Now, 2 Corinthians 6 is interesting in this regard. 2 Corinthians 6. And in uh, verse 4. Here Paul is describing the situation. um, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses. He uses both words, phlipsis for afflictions and enagki for necessities. And he's just talking about the things that he and the apostles were going through. Not talking about the end time at all. So the the words are similar. There's some difference in them, but they're related, and Paul used both those words in one verse to speak of the afflictions and tribulations of being a minister and of giving technical-type sermons that might be hard to understand. Now, let me point out that it is okay to use the term great tribulation, but realize that the word is not limited to that three and one-half years. It may include it, but it is not limited to it. We'll see that. Revelation 7 is specific. There he uses the definite article, the, and he says, the great tribulation. These people had just come out of the great tribulation. What is, excuse me, I'll back up here a minute. Now, the context shows there in Revelation 7, which you've already read, after Christ returns, after the first resurrection, a period of judgment. Now, we already know that a period of judgment is a period of time. It's not like when Christ comes back and all of a sudden he just starts saying, goat, sheep, goat, sheep. We've been over that. It takes time to determine whether you are a goat or a sheep. It takes a lifetime. We have a period of judgment here when Christ comes back it is not going to be to judge us in the church of God already our judgment will already be done because when he returns in a moment in the twinkling of an eye we are either changed or we're left standing here so the judgment is already made but these people are standing before the throne to be judged if they were in the first resurrection they couldn't be in that position now this group, this great multitude, probably includes or possibly could include the people in the millennium because who is Christ going to start judging when he comes back? He will pass out our rewards, then he will start judging the people in the millennium over a lifetime. And what other group is there left to judge? The great white throne judgment. Those people do not live until the thousand years is finished then all Israel will be resurrected as Ezekiel 37, along with the rest of mankind who has not understood the truth, and they will be given a hundred-year period of judgment, if we're right about the hundred-year part. But certainly a period of time to be judged. So the Great Tribulation includes the three and a half years, but it is much broader than that. The Great Tribulation includes... 6,000 years of man's experience this has been a great tribulation ever since Satan tempted Adam and Eve and it has never let up it's great in terms of the length it's great in terms of the pressure Satan puts on us look at your own life look at the friends and relatives and people you know are we not living under great tribulation, great affliction great duress, hasn't man always lived under that once you understand the 144,000 are all of the firstfruits and that they are all that are in the first resurrection then you have to understand that this has to be later now let's crunch some numbers here to see if this after all could be the latest sense remember John knew how many were in the 200 million man army. We went over that in Revelation 9.16. The army that comes to the battle of Armageddon is listed as 200 million. And John could see that, he knew the exact number, knew how many people were involved, so he could count that high or in the vision the number was given to him as being that high. That was countable. 200 million we can count they're going to do the census for the United States here pretty soon if they get around to it. And we're going to find that we have 275 million people or more. That is, if the end doesn't come and it's a lot less by then. But, uh, you know, let's... Normally speaking, that's what they'll do. And they'll be able to count and know that there are about that many men, women, children in this country. Uh, chapter 5 and verse 11 of Revelation, I'll just refer to this quickly in passing again, I think we covered it before, but Revelation 5 verse 11, and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne of the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So they could be numbered this was 100 million plus thousands of thousands of the beasts and elders and angels. Now this group In Revelation 7, it says, no man could count. A great innumerable multitude that no man could count. God could, or he can count the numbers of hair on all our heads, but it was beyond the ability of John or any man to number. Now, if you can number 100 million, if you can number 200 million, where do you reach a point where you can't number it? How many people have ever lived on the face of this earth? The estimate fifty to sixty billion people have lived. Now that to me is innumerable. I, I couldn't count that. We couldn't count that. We've got five and a half, six, six and a half billion people alive today. That would be a very daunting task to try to actually go out and count them all. Now there's a the number that's getting on up there, but fifty or sixty billion? How many people will survive the Holocaust at the end of the age and remain when Christ touches down on Mount Zion? Ever stop to think about that one? I don't think I'd ever grasped it before. I started looking into this a little bit. Start reading Revelation 6, the seals. For sake of time, I won't go through all of this. But you go through chapter 6 and it says conquer, sword, famine. Uh, the, the fourth seal, death and hell, kill 25% of men. Well, out of six billion, there goes a billion and a half or so. That's easy. Get rid of those with just one seal. And then the seals continue, martyrdom and killing, earthquakes. You go to the seven trumpets. Then you get down to some real destruction, hail. And every one of them is kill, 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 kill. Then you get down to the sixth seal, I mean the sixth uh, trumpet, and the 200 million man army kills for five months, and it says they kill 33 and one third percent of man. Now, I don't know whether that was the third of the original start before the 25 were killed and all these other seals and trumpets, or whether that's a third of what's left, but it's still an awful lot of people. A third of six billion would be to another two billion. Twenty-five percent and thirty-three and a percent, and then again, I don't know whether that's uh, compositely or of what's left each case. But after that, more are killed, and we've not even talked about the seven last plagues of God's wrath, in which hundred and twenty-pound hailstones and tremendous killing will occur—a year of the wrath of Jesus Christ. You've seen what His small anger, but for a moment, has done to the church. What will this physical wrath do to the population of the earth? Revelation 19, he says, Then that Armageddon kills the 200 man, million man army and a lot of other people who are gathered at Armageddon. There's a lot of killings just ahead of us. Isaiah 24. Let's pick up a couple of references to show that. Isaiah 24. And uh, beginning in verse 1, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty. And makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. So, uh, pretty devastating sounds like. Verse 6. Therefore has the curse devoured the earth. They that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men left. Verse 12. (laughs) In the city is left desolation and the gate is smitten with destruction. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. Did you ever shake a fruit tree, a smaller one, grab it by the main stalk and just shake it when the fruit was ripe? Not much hangs on. He says that's the way this earth is going to be. The cities will be empty, desolate. Verse 18. Verse 18. It shall come to pass that he who flees from the noise of fear shall fall into the pit, and he that comes up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. It will reel as a drunkard. And when, verse 23, then shall the the moon shall be confounded, and the sun be ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. So when Christ returns to reign, or just in that time frame, he is going to shake it, and few people are going to be left. Joel 2 through 3. Uh, I'll just quote a couple here in passing. Verse Chapter 2, verse 11. says, in, a, in essence, who can abide the day of his coming, as Handel put it in the Messiah? Who can abide it? Most will die. Chapter 3, verse 9. He tells them to beat their plowshares Are there pruning hooks into plowshares or swords? i I garble that all up. But you know what I mean. He calls on the Gentiles to come to the battle of Armageddon and be destroyed. Now, let's go to Daniel 7, 7. Tie this in. I think it's interesting because it, to me, indicates how many will be left when this is all said and done. Out of over 6 billion people that we have right now, what will be left? Daniel 7. And verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, now see, you're going to sit on his throne, and uh, the first resurrection, the 144,000, including the Laodiceans, are going to sit with him on his throne, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool, that's the exact description that John uses of Christ in Revelation 1, his throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were open. So he sat on the throne. We've already seen the church will sit on the throne with him, the first fruits. And here you have people standing before him to be judged. And the number is 100 million. Apparently, he's going to reduce the population of the earth from 6 plus billion down to 100 million. That's a lot of death and destruction. To put in little different terms, out of 6 billion, this is about 1.67% left alive. Less than 2 out of 100. Under 2%. Now, of Israel, we know that there's a remnant a small remnant, or a little less than 10% left. But of the population of the Earth, under 2%. Now, i would never done this before, but it's kind of interesting. As a sidelight, divide 100 million by 144,000. Anybody got the answer? Hard number, but with a pen you can do it. You come out to 687 and a fraction people per first fruit, per newborn God, 687. Now, if you divide that equally into cities, let's say each person ruled over one city, you'd have 680, I mean, 144,000 cities of 687 people. Not as daunting as you might have thought. we pastor pastored churches that big. Now, some will rule over five, some will rule over ten. We won't go into all that, but I'm just showing you the numbers here. It's not as daunting as you might have thought. You have a chance to grow into the job. There's not going to be much left. Unless this was shortened, there would no flesh be saved alive. Now, all the earth's population is numberable or countable at that point. That's truly a few by comparison. Now, God starts small. Consider Adam and Eve. He started with two. And then it swelled to probably millions, and then he reduced it to eight. And he started over. And then when he started the New Testament church, he started it with one, himself. And then he appointed 12 apostles, so he had 12 in the church, and 120. And then on the first day of Pentecost, there after the church started, 3,000. started pretty small. And here you start the millennium with 144,000 new God beings with Christ ruling over 100 million total population left on the face of the earth because that's how many he's judging. And if that's how many he's judging, that's got to be all of them because he's going to judge everybody that's left through their lifetime. So by a process of elimination here, what do we have left? 144,000 of the first harvest pictured by Pentecost. 100 million apparently represents those who begin to repopulate the earth during the millennium, pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles, and certainly a countable number. One category remains who lived, died, and had no opportunity to be judged as they lived converted lives. Those are those who died without ever having a chance at salvation, who will come up in the Great White Throne Judgment. And there could easily be 50 to 60 billion people there. By then we'll have had some experience, By then we will have also had many, many people converted and changed and made into God in the millennium, who will be there also to help. So when these 50 or 60 billion people come up to be judged and be washed and made white and cleansed and stand before the throne to be judged over a period of time, there will be sufficient personnel to take care of the numbers. Now let's understand that all these people who come up in the Great White Throne Judgment have gone through great tribulation. Consider Hitler's Holocaust. Consider Stalin's purging in Russia. Consider Jonesboro, Arkansas today. Consider the ethnic purges going on in the world today. Consider the religious act purges of the past, in the Middle Ages. Consider the Inquisition. Did those people who are being hung upside down and burned and boiled in oil and being sawed in half consider that to be great tribulation, great necessity, great trouble? You bet they did. If you had to ask them what's the difference between this and what's going to happen to those people at the end of the age who are cut in half, they'd have said, I don't see a bit of difference. As the saw cut into their flesh? That's great tribulation. And Satan has put tremendous tribulation on all of us. So when he says the great tribulation, he's not talking about the three and a half years at the end which are the greatest part of that greatness, but he's talking about the whole broad spectrum of Satan's rule on this earth being the great tribulation. And I believe that that's what this is referring to in Revelation 7, that these people stand before us. They stand before the saints. They are led to the waters, and their tears are dried then. They cried a lot of tears as they died. There are people today crying a lot of tears in Rwanda and in Algeria, and all over the place. Acts 14.22, through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. That's designed for all of us, not just those in the last three and a half years. Those people aren't converted except for a few Laodiceans who go in there anyway. Can you call the amount of lay of sins we might have today, a great multitude of all these peoples and nations and kindreds and tongues don't think you can. I think we've already seen that. John 16, 33, You shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer. <coughs> these are all familiar scriptures. Revelation 1, verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, tribulation was occurring then and the apostle Paul wrote to his brethren in the church and called himself a companion in tribulation these people have lived from Adam to the return of Christ under the great tribulation of Satan see Christ was careful to say that then shall be great tribulation in Matthew 24 but he didn't say the great it was the worst part of the great tribulation the last three and a half years is the worst part But when John described this group of people in Revelation 7, he called it the Great Tribulation. And if he was referring to those in the Great White Throne Judgment and possibly including those in the Millennium who lived through the last three and a half years of tribulation, (coughs) then it was a great and innumerable multitude, and it would include people of every nation, every kindred, every language, Everyone who's ever lived, who never had an opportunity at the truth. <coughs> now it's interesting in, in considering how exclusive the church is, that we today, small as the greater church of God is, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 converted people, maybe less, when you take out tares and so on. We're the only ones who can understand the plan of God. We're the only ones who understand the meaning of the holy days. That makes us a a, a tremendously exclusive bunch of people. And we're not even 144,000. A lot of those people are already dead and waiting in their graves for Christ to return. So it's a very small group of people today who even understand what this is all about who even understand the concept of the Great White Throne Judgment. Here's a quote from a book called Millennium by Tex Mars. He's written quite a few (laughs) books on the end time and the troubles in the world. But on page 93, and I didn't bring the book, I meant to, he says, do not talk about exclusivity in the world today. He said, the global movement makes that politically incorrect nobody wants you to be exclusive in any way they want you to be part of the global neighborhood not to stand out in any way brethren if we continue obeying God if we repent and get in line with God's ways if we're not ashamed of God's ways if we stand up for God's ways if we do everything God tells us to do and we don't hide it but we let our light shine from a hill as a light not hidden under a basket and we tended to do that over the years in God's church it's funny all those years of persecution, we went, or not, of not having persecution that we went through and we were, we said well we, we found all kinds of excuses for what we believed and we sort of hid it and we sort of ran from it like we were ashamed of it because we feared persecution would come because the bible says there will be persecution now we are at the time where if we stand up for the truth, the persecution's going to come. And now I'm telling you, don't do like you used to do. Christ told us to put our basket on a, our, our light on a hill, not to hide it under a basket, to be completely open. Somebody asked a question about clean or unclean. No, we don't eat that. You know what we used to say? well, I don't think that's good for you. I read an article one time that that was bad for you. I shouldn't eat pork. Or it has trichinosis worms in it. Would find some excuse rather than just saying, well, the Bible tells me not to eat pork, so I don't. I don't necessarily mean that we have to go out and be blatant about it, but didn't he say what I've told you in secret, Proclaim from the housetops? Why are we ashamed? Why are we embarrassed? The world does not want us to be exclusive. But God tells us we are very exclusive, that there are so few that understand, so few who grasp his plan, his purpose, and how that billions and billions of people are going to be saved, but not when Christ returns. His bride is a very exclusive, finite number. And to be included, we have to grow, we have to overcome, to repent. And that's what we should be thinking about as this Passover season comes upon us because this reward is there for those who will repent and overcome, and that same warning is given to all seven eras, not just to the Laodiceans. So it doesn't matter where you are in God's church. We have that ahead of us if we are to enter this very exclusive number. Well, next time I speak, we'll address a little different scripture, or a different body of scripture, which is also little understood, and, uh, That will also corroborate the theory that I put before you today to give some thought. So I guess I'll try to stop here almost on time, even though we had some troubles and got started late, and we'll talk to you next time.